it kind of gives us, the archaeologists give us confidence in our Bible. And the large, there's a large crowd with him. There's always a crowd with Jesus because he's a celebrity. Everybody wants to be with him. And as they're walking along, so, suddenly somebody begins to yell at the top of their lungs, just screaming. And we're told four things about this particular person who is yelling. His name is Bartimaeus. Everybody say Bartimaeus. Which means son of Timaeus. Bar means son of, son of Timothy. Of all the people Jesus healed, we only know the names of two. This is one, Bartimaeus. Anybody know the name of the other one? Lazarus. Yeah, exactly. So apparently his name meant something. I think probably he was a leader in the early church. He was known by the early church. His name is mentioned. Here's the second thing. He's blind. Of all the bad things that could happen to you to lose your sight, I've never been blind. I've tried to enter into with my imagination what it would be like to be blind. Um, we're told every couple of, every five, every five seconds, someone in the world goes blind, avoidably. 80% of that could be avoided. But what would it be like to be blind? What would it be like not to be able to see your phone, see your friends, see your family? I walk in, I look at you, you guys look great this morning. It's what a tragedy to be blind. How much you would lose if you lost your sight. We've noticed that sunsets here in Longview are just spectacular. But I'm blind. I, I, I can't. I live in darkness. That is my world. And we're told that he was a beggar. He's got no protector. There's no government agency giving him assistance, and the only way he can survive is, is beg. So he has no sense of pride. He has no sense of self-worth. He's almost invisible except to those who kick him as he's there or out of a kind heart, perhaps give him something, put it in his, uh, his case or put it on his cloak. He just tries to stay out of the way of people because his daily goal is to survive. If you've been traveling anywhere in the world, you've seen beggars, hundreds of beggars in every city. And we're totally positions, positions himself strategically where people will come by. So he's beside the road. So question, if you lost your sight, and in the Bible, sight is a, uh, it's a symbol of God's favor. If you lost your sight and you had to beg, could you still believe God was good? Could you still have faith in God? Could you trust Him still? You remember after the cross and the resurrection, Thomas, one of the apostles, said, I won't believe unless I can see the nail prints in his hands and feel the scars. Like so many of us, I'll believe it when I see it. And Jesus appears and says, look, feel. You see and you believe. Blessed are people who cannot see and who believe. So that's, that's this man. He's blind. And yet we're going to see that Jesus says to him, your faith has healed you. Your faith has literally, it's the Greek word sozo, your faith has saved you. So he enters into a relationship with God, eternal life, because of his faith, although he was blind. We use faith in a lot of ways, don't we? I'm a person of faith faith-based organizations. Faith is confusing to a lot of people. And this particular man is a really good picture of what it means to have faith. So verse 47 says, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, 
son of, son of David, have mercy on me. When he heard, I've been told that when someone lose one, loses a sense, one of their senses, their eyes, their ability to see, that the other senses are sharpened. So this man is listening. He hears the crowd as they're passing through. He hears the conversations and probably hears something about Jesus because Jesus is the center of attention. And maybe he hears, this is the man who healed crippled people and healed deaf people and he even healed blind people. And so the man begins out of sheer desperation, begins to yell and to scream, Jesus, common name, son of David, which is a messianic term. It's a description of the one who was going to come, the passage we read earlier, Jesus' first um, sermon in a synagogue. The, the Lord is, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's appointed me to preach good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind. Maybe all of this is kind of rattling around in this man's mind, and he simply says, have mercy on me. Because he says, he knows, he knows that Jesus owes him nothing. All he has is need. So he cries out for mercy. Anybody see your story in this man? This is the way we become a Christian. We recognize our need. We recognize there's nothing we can do about our need. We recognize that Jesus himself can do for us what we cannot do. And we call out to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Bartimaeus believes that Jesus can do something for him that has never been done. As you read the Older Testament, you never find a single case of a blind man being healed. So his faith is that Jesus can do the impossible. He can do something that has never been done before. So he's screaming, and the crowd tries to silence him. In fact, he uses a very strong word. They rebuked him. This is like sitting in the library, and you're just talking quietly, and all the people in the library gather around you and go, shh, shut it down. Shut up. He has no time for you. Button up. And why did they try to silence? Why did they try to silence? Jesus is somebody. You're a nobody. He doesn't have time for someone like you. He's not interested. It's real interesting. In the very same chapter here, the disciples do the same thing with people as they're bringing their little children to Jesus. He's no, has no, he has no time for your little child. And, of course, Jesus rebukes them and says, you better let the little children come to me. But this seemed to be a pattern in the life of Jesus, people deciding who was important to him and who was not important to him. So he cries all the more. He just gets louder and louder. He is screaming by this point. I got to thinking, he might have been blind, but there's nothing wrong with his vocal cords. He's desperate. He has no pride left at all. He has one hope, that Jesus, who healed other blind people, could heal him. And he's just asking for mercy. He just wants to be seen as well as to see. He wants to be recognized. And Jesus stopped. I love that. Jesus, who's on his way to the cross, stops at the request of a nobody. A penniless blind beggar, the least important person there, the poorest person there, a man with nothing to offer, a man who has, that no one else would pay attention to. 
And if he would stop for a blind beggar who cries out to him for help, you think he might stop for you. You think he might give attention to you. So Jesus says, call him. Go get him. Bring him here. Apparently he can't see him because of the crowd. I was talking with John this last week, and John said, it's interesting that Jesus has other people help that man get to him. That's kind of a picture of what we're called to do as believers, help other people find their way uh, to Christ. The same crowd that said, shut up, is now saying, get up. Kind of interesting. He's gone from, he doesn't want to have anything to do with you to, he wants to see you. Pretty fickle crowd. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus. That cloak was probably what he spread out uh, on the ground, kind of like a guitar player putting his guitar case there, and people would come by and put some coins in it. It was also the thing that he wrapped around himself at night, like a sleeping bag to keep him warm at night. In fact, the Old Testament law says if you take someone's cloak as collateral because of a loan, you have to give it back before nightfall, otherwise they might freeze. The cloak was all he had. Probably his only possession. And he leaves it on the road. Doesn't need it anymore, he thinks. I'm going, I'm going to I'm going to come to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, here's the question. What do you want me to do for you? When I was a teenager, somebody loaned me the book, Snappy Answers to Stupid Questions. Published by Mad Magazine. Anyone here remember Mad Magazine? A little goofy kid on the front, you know, what, me worry? It's a magazine of satire, a very sarcastic magazine. And the idea of this book was when people ask questions that are stupid, give them a snappy answer. For example, you walk into the house, you're drenched, soaking wet, and someone says, is it raining outside? <laughs> and you say, no, I rode home in a water truck. Or you say, no, I'm practicing to be a water sprinkler. These are snappy answers to stupid questions. A few years ago, I was having a special event at the church, and I invited people to come. I said, you really need to be here. And a lady came up to me, and she and was obviously very great with child. And she said, I want you to know it's nine months, three weeks, and two days, but I'm still here. And another woman came up and said, haven't you had that baby yet? I thought, well, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> silly question. You know where you hear silly questions? Watching sports on television. You're watching the Cowboys and the quarterback fumbles the ball and the commentator very wisely says, now that's something they were hoping to avoid. Glad you told me that. I never would have thought about that. The team is behind, time is running out, and the commentator says, what they need to do is put some points on the board. I'm so thankful I'm listening. That never would have occurred to me. They pay people to do these kinds of things. And I'm guilty of, I'm, I'm guilty of asking silly questions. I see someone in the arm, their arm is in a cast, and I can't help but saying, to hurt your arm? No, I just like wearing a cast. I mean, silly questions are asked all of the time. And one of the reasons I'm so intrigued by Jesus is he asks a question that seems to be silly at the time, but he's always intentional. He never does anything randomly. And there's more going on. It seems to be but it's not a silly question. It's not a stupid question. So why in the world would you ask a blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? You're not looking for information. 
Jesus already knows. He knows what he's going to say. So the Lord never asks questions just to get information back. And he doesn't ask questions to toy with us, to take advantage and capitalize on something we say in order to make a point of humor or a joke. The Lord doesn't play with us. He's got a very real reason for asking questions like this. This is a question that would force this man to think, what do I want? I've spent my life begging for money. Do I want more money? Is that what I want here? If I see, I've got to get a job. Other people have supported me to this point. I'll have to take responsibility. Or he might have thought, you know what I really want, Jesus? I'd like you to tell me why someone like me who's done nothing to deserve this has to live with this kind of pain. Could you please explain that to me? Or do I really believe Jesus can do the impossible? Do I have enough faith to ask for something really big? This is a question that I've asked people quite a bit. I've asked some of you in this congregation, what do you want Jesus to do for you? It's a question that refines your thinking. It's a question that forces you to focus in. What is it I really want? And I'm sometimes surprised when I ask people this question. I asked a dying woman one time, I said, what would you like Jesus to do for you? And she said, take care of my children. I expected her to say, would you heal me and give me more years of life? But it's a question that drives you to ask, what is it, the, the deepest desire of my heart? What is it that I want? You find these kinds of questions that Jesus asks on a regular basis. In the same chapter, he asked the same question to two of his disciples who came and said, would you do for us what we want you to do? And he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want power and we want prestige. Wrong answer. He asked a blind man and he says, just want to be healed. He went to the Old Testament and the angel wrestles with Jacob. Anybody remember the story? And the angel says, what is your name? The angel knew his name. The question is being asked all of the time, not for information, but to bring something out of that person. And Jacob, whose name means cheater, heel holder, supplanter, con man, says, my name is cheater. I'm a lousy, good-for-nothing cheater. His life has changed because someone asked him a question that forced him to go deep inside and say, what is it I really want? Who is it that I really am? And sometimes the Lord just wants to probe our hearts. Sometimes he wants to refine are asking. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see my sight to be recovered. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. What a moment. Light burst into his eyes. And the first face he sees is the face of Jesus. And Jesus says, go your way. It's so interesting. Jesus says, go your way, but he says, my way is your way. I'm going your way. And he follows Jesus on the way. It's a picture of what a disciple is like. Who come, one who comes, I recognize my need. I know that only Jesus can meet my need. I ask for mercy, and he gives me his more than just mercy. Renews my life. I am regenerated, and I follow Jesus on the way. It's a picture of, of a disciple. And I believe Jesus still comes to people and asks the same question. In fact, I want to end with three questions. What would you like Jesus to do for you? 
I don't think there's any reason not to believe Jesus is still asking the same question today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we come to worship, we come to an encounter with the living God, and we bring our needs, and we bring our desires, and Jesus, if you can picture him, is walking up and down the aisles, stops at your seat, puts a hand on your shoulder and says, is there anything you'd like me to do for you? What would you like me to do for you? What is it you want? And to be honest, some of us are really frightened by that question because our desires frighten us. Some of us are not sure we should have desires. God created you with desires. And some of us aren't sure we know what to answer, really. Some of us are reluctant to, uh, to give an answer because we don't know how to ask. And sometimes I think we ask things really flippantly, so easily. When my children were little, at Christmas time, sometimes Ruthie and I would ask them to make a Christmas list of the things that they wanted. It would take a truck to carry the number of things that are on their list. And if I had all the money that I've spent on things my kids said they wanted and they really didn't want, I could have retired years ago. How do you know what's a passing fancy and how, would you, how do you know what's a real deep need? Ron Dunn, who was a Bible teacher from another generation, said this. One night I was sitting in the den reading the newspaper. My son, who was about eight years old at that time, came up and was standing there. I kept reading and he was standing there. I lowered my paper and said, what do you want, son? I forget what he asked for, but he, he wanted something. I said, no, you can't have it. I went back to my reading. I was aware he kept standing there. I read and he kept standing there. I lowered the paper and he was standing there going back and forth on his heels, playing with his hands. I said, Stephen, what are you doing? He said, I'm waiting for you to change your mind. And then Ron said this, you know what I discovered? I discovered that when my child asked for something and I said no, if they took, if they took the first no, I know it didn't mean much to them. But if they were bulldogged, tenacious, and kept on asking and worried me to death and wore me out asking, I would begin to feel it was really important to them. You couldn't shut this man up. He would not back off. Jesus gave two parables about prayer. And in both parables, he spoke about persisting in prayer. So I'll ask the question, what would you like Jesus to do for you? Here's the second question. How badly do you want it? How badly do you want it? I was watching Mark Rodell over here playing piano, and I found myself thinking, I'd give anything to play like that. And then the thought came to my mind, no, you wouldn't. Because you're not willing to practice. You're not willing to deny yourself other things. You're not willing to focus yourself, discipline yourself to practice like that. And I think the same thing is true in prayer. Many times we come to the Lord and we say, I'd really like to have this, but the reality is we really don't because if we got that, it would mean something would change in our life. We just want the Lord to lay it on us. I've heard that when people are dealing with some diseases, heart disease, diabetes, they go to a doctor, and the doctor says, you've got to change your lifestyle. You've got to begin eating nutritious meals. You've got to begin exercising, doing some walking. You've got to get some rest. The statistics say most people will not change their lifestyle even at the threat of their own death. We just want a pill. 
I don't want to have to change my life in any way. And what is so interesting about this man here is he really wanted what Jesus could do for him. How badly did he want it? He wanted it badly enough that he ignored public opinion. Just settle down. Just be quiet. Just shut it down, will you? Everyone's trying to quiet him. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He didn't care what people thought. He wasn't going to let their opinion of him rob him of what Jesus could do for him. He wanted it enough to be persistent. The louder he cried, the more they tried to shut him down, the louder he became. He wanted it enough to take responsibility, leaving his cloak. He wanted it enough to let every obstacle that could keep him from Christ to the lead left to the side and walk away. Nothing standing in his way. He would not let anything slow him down, get in his way. Do you want what the Lord can do for you badly enough to be persistent and to get rid of anything else in your life that might be a hindrance to you? Here's a third question. What would you like the Lord to do for you? How badly do you want it? And what will you do with it? It's interesting to me as this man was healed, Jesus said, go your way, your faith has made you whole. He recovered his sight, he followed them in, his, in, the, in the way. What did this man do with the blessing that God gave him? He used it to follow Jesus. Anyone here praying that God will give you more money? Are you using what he's given you already to follow Jesus? Anybody here praying for more time? Are you using it right now, the time that you do have to follow Christ? Anyone praying for health? Are you using the health you have right now to follow Christ? Could it be that God will do for us and give to us depending on what we intend to do with what he has given us? See, the question's already answered by what we've already done with what Christ has given to us. Or let me put it this way. I believe God is willing and ready to give you anything that will make you a better disciple. I believe God will answer any prayer. He will meet any need. He will solve any problem that will make you a better disciple of his. I love this story because no matter where we are, it just grabs us. Whatever situation we find ourselves in speaks directly to us. And some of us are like this man. Blindness is a symbol in Scripture of lostness, of emptiness, of a lack of relationship with Christ. And the reality is, in a room this size with this many people, there are some of you who could not answer the question, have you been forgiven of your sins? I hope I have. I want to. And if you will cry out for the mercy of God, if you will come to Christ and ask him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, forgive your sins, give you peace, Gave you a sense of purpose. I think you'll find he answers that prayer because I can't find anywhere in Scripture where he turns someone away who asks something like that. We have to see our need to come to Christ. We have to recognize, have the blinders removed, see who he is like this man. And then when he touches us, we follow him on the way. So I want to close with this question. Jesus often ask people, what would you like me to do for you? I believe he's asking the question today. What do you think God desires 
What do you think the Lord wants for himself? And Jesus has not left us to wonder about that. Listen to John 17, 24, where Jesus prayed and said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am and see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. If you ask the question of Jesus, what is it you want? He would say, I want you to see my glory. I want you to bask in my glory. I want you to be filled with the peace and the purpose and the joy that comes from sitting in my glory. And come to Christ, and we find he can do for us what no one else can do. Would you bow your head in prayer with me, please? If you feel like crying out for God's mercy, I just want you to know it's the sweetest sound he hears when someone cries out for help. He will stop. He will save. Don't let the fear of what other people will think keep you away. You just keep crying out to the Lord for mercy. Find him there for you. Lord, we thank you that uh, someday... We will bask in your glory. We will see you as you are. We will be stunned, and it will be something that we will never recover from for all of eternity, learning more and more, growing more and more enamored by who you are. Thank you for your power to save. Thank you for your power to heal. This is a church that believes in healing. I pray for those this morning who would seek that, that you would work in supernatural power for your glory for the good of many people. I pray, pray, Lord, that you would find us following Jesus, following you on the way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And by the way, if you prayed that prayer, I hope you'll tell someone. I hope you'll tell me or tell one of the folks who is part of the prayer team that will be here. I want to ask those who are going to help us with communion, if you would, to go and prepare these elements as you seek to serve us. And when those elements are prepared, a few men would just come and begin to serve us here. When this story took place, Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem, and his mind was on the cross. He is stealing himself for what will come. He's preparing himself. He's thinking through what he will say to his disciples on the, na on the last night that he spends with them. They're headed for Passover. Go ahead and just begin to serve us if you would. And Passover is kind of a, it's, the, it's Thanksgiving and the 4th of July and Easter all rolled up in one day. And his mind is on what he will do. His mind is on the, what will happen on the cross. And he knows that on that last night, at Passover, he will take a piece of bread and he will break it. He'll give thanks and he'll say, take this, eat it, all of you. This is my body broken for you. And he takes that third cup of wine, Passover celebration. And he says, drink this, all of you. This is my shed blood to establish a new covenant with you. Drink all of it. 
And as often as you do this, he says, remember me. Don't forget me. So we gather for communion now. And as these men are uh, passing these elements to us, take a moment, thank the Lord for his goodness. In your mind, cry out for mercy if you need to. Ask him to forgive those sins, things that the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Say, Lord, if there's anything you have to say to me, I'm listening right now. I'm listening. And prepare yourself for taking communion. We invite you, if you're not a part of this church family, because you, if you're a part of the family of God, to partake with us, join with us. It's the Lord's Supper. And if you know you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've already picked up something, just hand it to the person beside you. Say, I'm not ready for this, because really this is a family meal for the family of God. Nobody will say anything to you. Nobody will think anything. And if guilt is racking your soul right now, this is the time to say, Jesus, you died for someone like me. Forgive my sins. Wash me clean. And I receive your forgiveness because of the price you paid on the cross and the way you rose from the dead. Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup. I believe he must have smiled at that point. The way he smiled at that blind man who couldn't see a smile, perhaps heard it in his voice. Jesus said, Take this cup and drink it. This is the new covenant that I'm making with you. When you do this, he said, remember me. Let's drink. When you leave, if you would, take the cup and just put it in one of the trash cans located, located at the exits. Let's stand together and let's sing.
Great is your faithfulness, O God. You wrestle with the sinner's heart. You lead us by still waters into mercy. And nothing can keep us apart. Grace is enough. Amen. Please join us for this afternoon's potluck. If you're new, stop by our guest services. If you'd like to get connected, stop by our service desk. We really want to be a part of your world and have you be a part of ours. We need each other. God bless you. We'll see you next week.